Hello, I'm Deanne Kasim, and welcome to the Change Healthcare Policy Connection podcast. With me, as always, is Arian Malik. Hey, Arian. How you doing? Good. How are you? I am enjoying life outside right now while we've got the weather to do it. Good for you. It looks great. We have a special guest today, uh, someone who has joined us two years ago to talk about value-based healthcare in the States, and I am pleased to welcome her back today to talk about all kinds of emerging health policy issues. Amy Tourson is a senior policy fellow at the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy. She has senior strategic responsibilities in the center's continued development and expansion of a substantial state health policy research and analysis program at Duke Margolis. Previously, when she spoke with us last, she was at the National Governors Association. Amy, welcome. It's great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always good to chat with you. We appreciate your insights. Well, we have a lot a lot on the menu that we can talk about today. So before we jump in, I wanted to just get a little bit more information about you. Tell us about your journey, where you've been, what led you to, to Duke, and really what are some of the current things you're working on right now? Sure. Um, well, last we spoke, I was leading the health division at the National Governors Association, um, where I really um, led health policy development for governors and their staff. And great job, lots to do. And of course, we were working on things like value-based care and, you know, the Medicaid program and thinking about pharmaceuticals, et cetera. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened. And along with everybody else, we really focused 24-7 to support governors as they were on the front lines of the COVID-19 response. And, you know, back in March and April, that was really focused on things like, um, you know, getting vents where they were needed, you know, places like New York City where they had such an outbreak. Um, thinking about um, PPE, making sure that, you know, people were getting that, getting what they needed. Um, things like testing, where it was the Wild West, where people were trying to get testing supplies and, you know, and and it, everything was closed down. And so actually figuring out, you know, how governors should think about reopening. And so very, very busy time, lots of different things happening. And, and during that time, we learned a lot. And I decided to, you know, make a move to the Duke Margolis Center where, you know, they have been really heavily invested in COVID-19 response. So it was actually a very seamless move, um, continue to work on COVID-19 issues with the states, but also thinking about other topics, which, you know, address, you know, driving more cost and value into our healthcare system and thinking about things like, you know, Medicaid expansion and, and you know, worrying about and really worrying is the term about how to continue to to address things like substance use disorder and mental health, which has been really emerging in the context of the pandemic. So we have a lot to talk about, I know, um, but I, I just have to say, you know, I'm, I'm so committed to work with states. They are under so much pressure and they have been under so much pressure to really serve their state residents um, and really having to lead a lot of this pandemic response. So really looking forward to the conversation today. Great, thank you for that. You've been busy uh, in the past year, I would say. And I think this will be great. Um, you know, in a former podcast, we had uh, the wonderful people from NCSL on here. So oh, I really appreciate yes. your insights as a nice adjunct um, with that. Um, so here we go. You know, as you just said, okay. states are facing an array of difficulties, uh, pandemic, budget, economic fallout. Uh, addressing these is going to take a lot of oxygen, if you will, and a lot of work. Um, at some point, state governments and Congress and the new administration really need to tackle other issues as well, such as the longer term issues of healthcare delivery, new value based care models, coverage, cost. Um, so 
with all that said, you know, between the immediate issues of the pandemic and the things that we're looking to get to after we get out of immediate crisis reaction mode, what in your perspective are states maybe putting on hold for right now and trying to deal with later? Um, you know, where do you see these priority areas falling into place and what do you think will get the most traction first? Yeah, and this is a it's a great question. So some of the really hot topics before we, you know, walked into the pandemic um, were things like, you know, addressing opioid use um, disorder, um, behavioral health integration, thinking about how to drive more value into the healthcare system through things like cost commissions and other all payer ideas like, you know, accountable care organizations. Um, these these ideas around how do we get our arms around, you know, slowing down the cost of our healthcare system. I think a couple other things that, you know, different states are working on, states that have not expanded Medicaid, a few states were considering how to move forward on that. There was a real interest in addressing pharmaceutical costs that was both really at the congressional level as well as the state level. And at the state level, there was state legislatures that were very busy on this, but there were also governors that were really interested in this. So, you know, before all this, that was our portfolio of, of what we were going to work on with the states and definitely a lot of leadership at the governor's level and all of those topics. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And because of that, I think some of these pieces have had to slow down. I mean, you know, states ha are, are, you know, wonderful, um, hardworking people at the state level, but there's only so many of them. And there is limited capacity to do all the things that they need to do on a normal day. With COVID-19 response, you know, obviously, you know, state health departments were on the forefront, but, you know, governor's offices and all sorts of other state staff have been pulled in given the magnitude of the pandemic and the effort we have to put in, we've had to put in on a national level. So all that to say, all these other pieces, you couldn't, you couldn't spend a much, as much capital really bringing them forward. And so where I've seen a slowdown is certainly the work around pharmaceutical costs, um, slow down around really um, ideas around driving cost and value, because those are big ideas that require a lot of um, work and effort, you know, multi-year effort to really get them off the ground. So those those have definitely slowed down. Um, there's still some conversations around Medicaid expansion in certain states, but in some states that slowed down as well. And, you know, I wanted to also mention just, you know, the state budget outlook as well. So, you know, not true in every single state, but a number of states are going to be facing pretty significant budget shortfalls. And that really depends on the economy in their state. And I'm sure my friends at NCSL talked about this at great length. Um, really thinking about, you know, how they're going to be able to manage budget shortfalls, because unlike the federal government, states really do have to manage their budgets um, generally year to year. And they have to figure out, OK, if we don't have enough money for particular activities, we have to cut. Um, and that has been, I think, a, a challenge and a concern for some states as they go into what they think is going to be budget shortfalls in 2021 and 2022 and potentially beyond. It's not going to be just, you know, if the public health emergency ended, let's say, by the end of 2021, budget ramifications could continue beyond that. So all that to say, I think with the budget shortfalls in play, um, the ability to do things, you know, make more investments, think about how to add more staff, you know, ideas around moving money around it are, are more limited. And really the focus has to be how do we drive more value and efficiency into our systems? Agreed. Yeah, and definitely drug purchasing, drug costs, it's not an easy lift, uh, especially at the state level. I think, I mean, we've seen how it's taken four years of the current outgoing administration. And, you know, in the last days, we finally get, you know, some some rules that, that dropped um, after all the discussions back and forth, of course, with Congress. 
You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, because we've seen some states make some announcements just in the last week about telehealth, whether it be payment parity or expanding it so that behavior health is at payment parity for telehealth versus in-person visits, which I think is an interesting start of a trend. Um, you know, what are your thoughts yeah. on telehealth and not only coverage parity, but state uh, payment parity in the states? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to sometimes look at silver linings of this pandemic and, you know, it's it's nice to sometimes look at the silver linings. I definitely think telehealth is one of them. Um, we have learned a lot on telehealth and the experience of telehealth because it was really forced upon us. I, you know, I, I joke, you know, there was five years of, of movement in, in a very short period of time during the pandemic on telehealth because everybody was doing it. I think as a result of that, people have understood the value and the importance of telehealth if it's done right. And that's why I think you're seeing some states saying, you know, we really do actually have to make sure telehealth is paid at the same level. We have to make sure that there's going to be access for certain folks through telehealth for things like behavioral health services, because we're not going to have, you know, as robust networks as we would like in every place in the United States. And so I do think um, states are going to continue to be interested in investing in that. All the flexibilities at the federal level and also at the state, you know, licensure level to allow more telehealth to happen. You know, I think the states are going to want to look at that to see if it should continue on. But I think there's there's real interest in how we think about new healthcare delivery changes that involve longer-term telehealth options, which includes payment parity as well as um, the the licensure piece and allowing you know different types of folks to provide services. Agreed, agreed. You know, that licensure piece is so important. And um, I know that earlier this year, uh, the Healthcare Leadership Council's members were actually working on some language to try to get that addressed at the federal level, only to be told this is a state issue. The federal government can't usurp it. Yeah. So definitely good stuff. And uh, hopefully we'll get some more investment in broadband uh, as well, because I, I do believe the rural areas have really been left out of the whole telehealth revolution, if you will, just in the last few months even. Yeah, and if I could just comment on that for a minute, you know, we're working with a couple of different states on, you know, where should your state go with respect to improving your healthcare system? And that has consistently come up. And it's a concern because there's already disparities emerging, we all know, um, both, you know, on racial and ethnic lines, but also rural and non-rural areas. And that has been one of the biggest challenges is the broadband. And of course that requires investment. So, you know, hoping there's some interest perhaps on Capitol Hill to think about federal dollars that could help states because as we just talked about, the state budget um, horizon is not great for the next, you know, couple of years. Agreed, agreed. To be continued. Uh, I do believe the incoming yeah. administration has said they want to make that a priority, um, you know, within their first 100 days about getting a next congressional package. So, you know, yeah. we shall see. Uh, I want to give it over to you, Erin. I know you've got some some topics you want to discuss too. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so we're going to talk about the things that are, in fact, distracting states, uh, not distracting states, but are, are the things that are taking states' attention away from uh, fundamental health system reform topics. And we're going to talk about COVID and in particular vaccine distribution. Um, you know, Hemi, uh, you, you mentioned uh, prior to the podcast that we probably shouldn't uh, chase every piece of news. Uh, it's an evolving landscape. So we'll try to stay focused on uh, some evergreen topics of policy with relate with respect to vaccine distribution. We've made significant strides recently. Um, I just saw we were up to uh, something on the order of 600,000 uh, vaccines in arms, vaccinations uh, happening. But to meet the incoming administration's goal of uh, 100 million in 100 days, 
um, we're going to need to accelerate. I, th I think the answer is to about 2 million vaccinations uh, per day. So um, maybe you can talk about coordination, in particular coordination at the federal, state, and local level, and um, you know how that coordination can be done most effectively to accelerate rollout and accelerate turning the the vaccine backlog into vaccinations, the vaccine vaccines in arms. Yeah, no, happy to comment on that. And there's a lot to talk about. So I guess you know one thing I I just do want to say is this is unprecedented. I, I keep using that term and I feel silly using it, but it really I really feel strongly about it in what we're trying to do with the vaccine rollout. Um, just the volume and the number of new systems that had to actually you know be put into place is is really quite remarkable and and i you know i personally you know think the idea that there was you know there were going to be 20 million you know doses by the end of des december and everybody was going to get them you know 10 million of those 20 million was was a really high target that was not going to be achievable that quickly um that said you know states i think in local you know health departments are working really hard um to try to catch up and learn from you know all of the different pieces that rolled out in in the first couple of weeks and I will say a couple of things, maybe just talk a little bit about the challenges and then maybe talk about how the federal government can really help support um, clearly resources. And so we have money now. Um, but, you know, in those early days of planning and rollout, the states didn't have the benefit of knowing the federal resources would be there. And I think that really slowed down some of the steps that they took early on. Um, they just didn't know. They couldn't count on, you know, what you know, billions of dollars basically that they were asking for from the federal government. So it's great that that's here now, and you know, states are going to have to have a really effective plan on how to spend that quickly, um, which is not always easy to do, but really has to be done in, in this instance. So that's huge. Um, I think the the second piece is the communications. Um, it, you know, states had to come up with these plans, and we all we looked at all these plans at Duke Margolis, you know, back in October. Um, and they had to come up with, you know, plans for communication and rollout before they even had the authorization from the FDA for these vaccines. This is how quickly this has all happened. And I think people forget, you know, this is really not usually how it goes. Um, they didn't have, you know, the final authorization from the Food and Drug Administration or the recommendations from CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And so they were all, you know, tentatively planning about how this would roll out. And in the end, you know, it was healthcare workers and long-term care facilities um, staff and residents, and that's, you know, that was pretty much what was expected. But that combined with the cold storage requirement of the Pfizer vaccine required them to, you know, really rely more on some of the some, some of the states, some of the big health systems that could handle it. And so, you know, what happened was there were some systems I think that were very effective in, you know, getting the vaccine out quickly. You know, there's hesitancy, of course, so not everybody's been vaccinated. You know, some of the big systems are like, we're at 60 percent, we're disappointed. But, you know, that's better than some of the other health systems that are reporting around the 40 percent um, piece. And so, you know, all of those um, distribution challenges, you know, it was one, there was limited vaccine every week. And then there was also you had to get everyone registered and on site. And, you know, for some of the systems, um, people reported, you know, there was delays. It was hard to schedule. Um, you know, there was just not the manpower to input the data once people were vaccinated. These were new systems. People had to get trained. And so, you know, a lot of this startup, you know, the hope is it's it's continuing to improve. And I think it is um, as we move on. Um, but it has to because there's a, there's millions, hundreds of millions of people that are going to need to get this vaccine. Um, so where I think the federal government can really help is is identifying here are some best practices. Here are ways that you could think about doing this. 
And really some of the states have said what they need most is logistical support in staffing and, you know, execution. Um, there's only so many people that are doing, you know, administration of vaccines and states are getting really creative, like, you know, nursing students, medical students, vets, you know, thinking about EM, you know, EMTs, who else can, you know, get authorized to vaccinate pharmacists, of course, have now, you know, come into the picture, you know, and the federal government has, I think, done a, a really great job partnering with the with the big pharmacy chains to help them get a leg up on the nursing home facilities and residents. And I think now looking forward to other populations as well through the retail clinics, I think that's gonna be a key piece as well. Because one of the things I think we've all learned is there's gonna to have to be a lot of partnerships. You know, State health departments and local health departments, they don't have the capacity to do all this by themselves. They're gonna need support from a lot of different partners. So yeah, we stop there and let you no, probe. Yeah, go that's ahead. That's fantastic. Yeah, let me follow up on on that last uh, line of conversation. I think there's been a lot of discussion lately about the system that we have for flu vaccination and how we were able to vaccinate uh, about uh, half of all adults uh, and about 60, 70 percent of all children uh, per year uh, for influenza with without significant logistical challenging challenges, obviously uh, with the Pfizer and to some extent with the Moderna um, vaccine, there were cold chain, chain requirements. And yeah. then uh, as people have noticed, maybe there's a pandemic going on and uh, we don't want to have people crowded inside um, getting uh, getting vaccinations. I think there's also been some additional policy uh, discussion about, you know, we've done a decent job of addressing uh, staff at hospitals and large institutions, but uh, how are we using, how are we vaccinating primary care uh, providers and how are we using uh, primary care providers as a, an avenue for getting vaccines in arms? So I wonder if you can comment on using the existing infrastructure that's been relatively successful for flu, what might need to be uh, modified for COVID and how we can best uh, get uh, national chain uh, drug stores, uh, uh, grocers and retailers with, with pharmacy chains, um, and then primary care um, as adjuncts to our vaccine distribution strategy. Yeah, a lot there. Um, so maybe I'll start a little bit with the primary care physician. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges um, in the rollout is going to be hesitancy. Um, we know this and there's reasons why, you know, it's we did a lot of work at, when I was at NGA on vaccine hesitancy, anti-vaxxers um, back, you know, before COVID. But this is a different challenge. I mean, this is a vaccine that was approved very quickly. Um, it's new. It's in the midst of a pandemic, and people have legitimate concerns. The, the you know science tells us this isn't a safe and effective vaccine. But people want to get more information, and so I think the first key piece to all of this is figuring out who are those trusted messengers for those people that are hesitant to get it. Um, and when you look at all the data of the various polls. The primary care practitioner is really high on that list. They want to hear from, you know, people want to hear from their doctor that it's okay to get this. Um, you know, there's that we found some information about like women who are expecting, for example, are, are worried about, you know, pregnant women are worried about getting this vaccine. They want to hear from their OBGYN, it's okay to get this. So they are going to be key, I think, in the messaging. With respect to the rollout right at this moment, um, you know, it's our understanding talking to a number of states and also talking to a number of primary care groups, they haven't been sort of at the front lines of really helping the states for this initial rollout because of the challenge of things like cold storage and because of the focus on healthcare workers. So, you know, there was a push really for the bigger health systems to be, you know, 
the organizations that were going to really be involved in the initial rollout. And I think we have to think about that and, and how we expand upon that in an efficient and effective way to make sure that those primary care practitioners can play a role because they're going to be so important um, to get the, the vaccine into the arms of, of millions of Americans across the country. I will also say, just taking a step back on like the flu example. So, you know, it, it, we don't usually have in a, you know, four week period trying to get, you know, millions and millions of people a vaccine um, so quickly um, with a new registration system and, you know, a new way of going about it. You know, with your flu vaccine, you have employers offering at their workplaces. You have people who can go to their pediatrician for their kids. You have people going to CVS. You have other people, you know, going to the local health department. There's a lot of points of access and there's, you know, there isn't this frenetic time frame that we're under. And so I think the combination of those factors where while I think we can think about leveraging those points of distribution um, after this initial wave of healthcare workers and long-term care facilities, and some states are already there, they're already, you know, opening up to everyone over 65. Um, we have to think about how to, to effectively use those pieces. Now, talking to some of the states, because they're worried about the numbers and the, you know, the speed, it's all about how, you know, how quickly can we do this? And that's really been the focus. Um, they really are thinking about mass vaccination sites as a potential option to help with this. Um, because through those, you have to make sure people can get there. There's, there's transportation options and it's going to be safe, you know, because people are going to have to be, you know, commingled with one another. So you have to have the social distancing measures. Um, but that's a way to get a lot of people um, vaccinated every day. And so states are starting to really investigate how to partner and they have to partner with different organizations to set those up. And so I really see those as kind of the next, um, you know, big point of access for some of these vaccines. It's gonna take them some time to set them up, but that's gonna get us to, you know, the millions that, you know, everyone wants to, to get to in this pandemic. Um, maybe one more question uh, on this yeah. topic on disparities on underserved yeah. populations. If you look at where uh, COVID disproportionately hits, it's in. So I'm, I live in Alameda County in in the in California, and when I look at the zip code map, it correlates almost one to one with areas of uh, poverty and social disparities. Uh, we also see issues in uh, rural locations. So thoughts from a policy perspective, uh, both around vaccine hesitancy and also around distribution at targeting uh, vaccine distribution to areas where we've seen the largest um, largest uh, morbidity and mortality uh, from, from COVID. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Something we're spending a lot of time on here at Duke. Um, I think there's a lot of concern about the disparities um, and how to address that. So there's two pieces. One is, you know, there is, and it's it's real, there's vaccine hesitancy for Black and Latinx and Native American populations. The surveys differ. Some surveys are showing that that hesitancy is decreasing, which is good to see. Others show it continuing to be kind of stable. Um, but all that tells you is there needs to be targeted outreach to those populations that actually reaches them. And so, you know, a lot of, when you look at the vaccine distribution plans by states, a number of them put equity as, you know, one of one of the principles that they're really gonna have to address. And, you know, talked about partnering with community organizations and making sure they're getting to, at the local level, um, trusted messengers to then share the information about vaccines, both safety and efficacy, as well as where to get it. 
I think the challenge at the moment has been there has had to be so much time spent on this initial rollout and making sure that, you know, healthcare workers, long-term care facilities, and now older adults in some states and some of the essential health, essential workers that are not healthcare that are coming in line are getting vaccinated. There hasn't been a lot of bandwidth at the state level to really engage those community organizations. We were just on doing some work in a state and, you know, the community organizations we talked to said, you know, we don't have the information we need. We don't know where we get the vaccine. And, you know, information is not available in different languages. Um, you know, it's intimidating because you have to go on these websites and, you know, you know, some of our you know, community members who have three or four jobs and, you know, don't have time to kind of investigate all of this are, are not going to. So we have to make it easier for them. We have to make them, you know, easier access point. And so, you know, my hope is as states start to really think about the equity piece and they think about these max mass distribution clinics and, you know, potentially mobile mobile vaccination clinics as well, that there is thought put into putting them in places where people who are at risk and, you know, who are in communities of color can easily access them. And I think that's going to be the key piece. Um, both from a communications perspective as well as a logistical perspective. You know, put them in where communities really need them, where you see potential um, outbreaks, where you feel like there's a lot of essential workers um, who are not healthcare necessarily, but are, are at higher risk, uh, and make sure that they know that this is a trusted source where they can go and get it. So, you know, I think hopefully we'll see some of that develop, but I think it's still in the planning phases right now. Right. So it sounds like the key there is, uh, as you mentioned, trust, in, in improving trust, in, improving uh, trusted sources and making sure that those trusted sources are people who can speak to the communities affected and then access, mm -hmm. making sure they're making it ridiculously simple and for people to know where to go uh, and be able to quickly access uh, vaccination. So we, we have we have a little bit of room to go uh, on both of those areas. Um, yeah. We're going to switch topics to public health. And okay. uh, I listened to uh, a podcast from some um, some virologist geeks who uh, seemed uh, in the middle of the, the podcast uh, somewhat surprised to learn that there are such things as immunization registries. Um, and uh, you know, I think if if there were a, if there were a do-over, we'd have done over uh, many things. But uh, I think we'd have made sure that we had robust uh, information flows to and from immunization registries. Uh, prior to uh, this uh, this pandemic starting. Um, some of your thoughts about uh, federal congressional priority and state priority relating to improving uh, state and local systems for public health um, and you know how we make sure that the that we take the lessons uh, from this experience uh, and make sure that we build a more robust uh, set of information systems and policy-driven systems uh, to make sure the next time something like this happens, uh, we look more like Taiwan than we look like uh, like the United States. Yeah, um, those are all very good questions. So, you know, every state has an immunization information system, IAS system, and they use that. They use that to track, you know, local health departments, state health department um, immunizations, for people who come in and get immunized and they've been you know using that for many years i think the challenge has been you know these systems are older they're more limited and they were not designed to deal with the volume that we have to deal with in this pandemic so what has happened is you know states have had to really add on to their original system some states have actually considered building new systems but most have added on 
to their IS systems um, with you know enhancements to make sure that they're able to do the scheduling, the tracking, and the reporting that's needed at the volume um, that's going to be required for all of these people getting vaccinated. So you know, as we all know, um, data is not something that necessarily happens overnight, data enhancement. And so there has been a, a challenge of getting those systems, you know, able to, to handle the capacity. And that was some of the, the challenges early on, you know, people waiting a long time to get scheduled, um, you know, people not being able to reach um, others with questions because of these systems. I think there was also a delay in actually providers learning the new systems and reporting into them. So I've heard that that started to improve because people are learning, but you know, there's all those pieces that, that have to be considered. Now, looking forward about how the federal government can help on that. Um, so you know, there was, there's a system called BAMS, um, which is a system enhancement to IAS systems that the federal government had actually released before this pandemic. You know, and I think it was, it was a handful of states that even used it. So there was a platform out there that could, you know, soup up immunization systems and it just wasn't utilized. And so now it's being utilized by a number of states. Um, but it's things like that where, you know, I, I think you have to get leaders to understand there needs to be some investments in prevention and preparedness. And that's where I, I, I think this pandemic has really shown we, we don't, we didn't have, we didn't have the deep enough investments. And that's why we were caught flat footed and we have to play catch up. Now, you know, from my days at the National Governors Association, those decisions are hard because you have to balance the budget, you know, generally every year. And there's lots of investments you want to make in things that are active right at the moment. So it's hard to think about, you know, planning for a potential event that could happen in the future. Um, and I and I think that's what I hope coming out of this pandemic thinking will change. And there will be an understanding that, you know, this, you know, very well could happen again. We need to be more prepared. We need to make those investments both at the federal level and the state level um, to make sure that we're going to be ready. And I, and I think the federal government can help set the tone for that, um, you know, through, you know, guidance and recommendations and funding so that states feel like they can do that with the budgets, as we know, are not going to be very robust over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think it's been a consistent theme of this uh, podcast series that, you know, we saw influxes of money post anthrax and bioterrorism preparation um, in the Bush administration. And then we saw waning and budget cuts. And if you're a state, uh, those that kind of wax and wane is really hard to deal with. So it would be better to put in place a longer term, more consistently reliable uh, funding mechanism for public health preparedness um, that had uh, teeth relative to adoption and use of standards um, and alignment of those standards across the ecosystem. Um, yeah. But you know, in many cases, it just comes back to the first order problem, which is uh, the burstiness of money and the fungibility of money in a time when maybe you have a recession um, and need to respond to other things that are happening. It's really hard to build a long-term preparedness system um, when you're having to, to balance the budget every every year and uh, don't have a consistent uh, set of funding mechanisms. Yeah. Um, can I just, can I have... add... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, if I just could add to that, you know, um, what we've also heard from states is, you know, what this pandemic has, has done to their social pro programs and the need for social programs, like food insecurity is really high in certain states. Um, you know, the education system, 
you know, has been challenged because of, you know, being on Zoom and hybrid and figuring out testing strategies and all of that. And these are all things that state budgets have to pay for. And in addition to healthcare, which we know is a huge part of the budget, especially the Medicaid program, state employees, et cetera. And so, you know, one thing I also, um, we have been thinking about here at Duke is how are states going to be able to continue to make those investments in other programs like, you know, um, food insecurity and housing supports and employment supports. That is that is needed right now. I mean, we have certainly seen and it especially has a disparate impact on communities of color. Um, so, you know, thinking about how we balance all of that um, with, you know, things like, okay, we also want to invest in prevention. I mean, this is the challenge of, of a governor, right? How do you balance in the legislature? How do you balance your budget in a way that makes sense for your state residents? And I do think, you know, over the next year um, to 18 months, there's going to be continued um, need for some of those more social supports with respect to things like housing and employment and food. And so, you know, at the federal level, I think, you know, they can certainly help um, with, you know, recognizing that and investing in that and providing funding. And at the state level and local government level, figuring about how, you know, how they can actually invest in those programs with federal support. So I just wanted to be sure we mentioned that. Yeah, thank you. All right. It can't just it can't just be take it out of uh, your operating budget because uh, those operating budgets are, are stressed uh, from all the things that you mentioned. Um, yeah. Other things we haven't talked about and then maybe Deanne back to you. OK, great. Yeah, Amy, I just wanted to pick up on what you and Arian were talking about. So, you know, we looked at right after the anthrax attacks and looking at public health. I can just speak to what I saw here in Maryland. Um, Montgomery County, where I live, started a public health volunteer force and they took clinicians and non-clinicians because the idea was in the case of a pandemic, we would just get volunteers and we could even train the non-clinicians to do IM shots if it came to it. Um, yeah. Then we had the, the housing bust and the recession fallout from that. So all the county programs rolled up to the state and that was kind of the end of it, you know, because money was needed for other things, to your point. So saw that firsthand. And I think, you know, what Aaron said and what you said is we just need that commitment of funding and it can't just go away with the next economic recession. Yeah. Um, great, great conversation. One last thing I want to insert um, a sort of shameless plug, but it's for a good reason is, you know, your colleagues at Duke Margolis, Hamey and the Healthcare Leadership Council and Deloitte will be releasing a report on February 4th that provides a public partnership framework for dealing with this pandemic, but more importantly, preparing for the next disaster, whether that be natural, man-made or, you know, pandemic. So, you know, look forward to that announcement and it's been really some great conversations between all the member companies other stakeholders and certainly your team at duke margolis thank you for being here amy we've, we've learned so much um, from your conversation really appreciate your insights um, thank you for our listeners and don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show stay tuned to our health change healthcare podcast for more shows covering the policy healthcare, and health it topics that you care about i'm deanne kasim and i hope you have a great rest of your day and stay well you've been listening to the change healthcare podcast for more information on this and other healthcare it topics please visit changehealthcare.com Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.